Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Curious people manifest curiosity at early age. And you're absolutely right. When you're a child, everything is open to you. And I watched this with a grandchild the other day. It was fascinating. There we are, table. And there, there's two long objects out there. They're kind of long and narrow. And one is a pencil and the other is a knife. So how does a child know which is dangerous and which is perhaps creative? They don't really know. And it's thought to be the job of the parents to draw these aggressively constrictive boxes that limit an individual's curiosity as time goes on. It is kind of genetic. It comes at an early age. The job of a good parent would seem to me not to stamp it out, but to encourage it. God, same thing for the university. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Craig, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srinivas, delighted to be here. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here. You have been on my list of people to reach out to for uh, quite some time. Uh, you have a book called The Hidden Habits of Genius, and I honestly couldn't even tell you how I found it or found out about it, probably because Amazon looks at all my other reading habits and uh, your book came up. And I remember reading the intro uh, when I downloaded it on Kindle and immediately I went and said, all right, send this to me. And I absolutely love that. I thought it was really relevant to not only creatives, but the world that we live in today. But before we get into all of that, um, I wanted to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you ended up making with your life and your career? <laughs> That's a, vi- a very interesting question. And, it, and it's so much a reflection of the age in which I grew, grew up, which was uh, after World War II. And the world was a very different place then. Um, and my mother was a housemaker only, only after um, uh, 60 years after the fact that I discovered looking through uh, books, not books, but documents re- regarding our family ancestry, that I discovered that she had a master's degree in business education. I didn't know that. I know that wow. she had gone to college. But because of that age, she wasn't a, a really allowed or encouraged. It was not thought proper for a highly educated woman to get out there in the public arena. What a tragedy that is. Um, I uh, went to the Eastman School um, of Music to be a 
the next great Van Clyburn, the next world's um, concert pianist of the highest order. I all working out very well, except when I got there, I discovered I was lacking only one thing, and that was musical talent. But <laughs> to, um, uh, to stay on point here with, with your question, Srinivas, what did my father do? Well, there I am in music. What did my father do? He was a certified public accountant. He had a CPA. Okay. Um, the, the farthest thing imaginable from music. I don't think, I never, now that I think of it, now that you ask the question, not only could he not sing a tune as far as I know, no, I'm not sure I ever heard him sing anything yeah. or, or, or express music in any sort of way. The music was sort of on my mother's side of the family. And at what when the gift was given down as it was to some other relatives and, in the family, I had a sister with perfect pitch. I have a granddaughter with perfect pitch, but the musical talent completely skipped me. But if it's in there, it's, I mean, coming down my my mother's side rather than the side of the family. So, master's degree in business administration on my mother's side, so not practicing in any sort of way. A PhD in economics, but on my father's side, but he was a practicing. He taught business administration and what was licensed as a certified public accountant. Okay, how in the world does the son of an economist and a woman with an MBA uh, end up in music of all places? Because funny enough, and I don't necessarily agree that you didn't have any talent at all because, you know, you probably, <laughs> this you may not know, because I played the tuba for nine years, so I know oh, this wow. trajectory. Uh, wow. I got into the USC School of Music, my dad being the wise person that he was, told me that, you know, you shouldn't do this. And then I kind of, you know, imagined the future. I was like, right, I'll be reading obituaries, not job boards, because there's only one tuba in every orchestra, as you know. Right. And you have to wait for somebody to die for a job to open up. And <laughs> but the thing is that uh, so my parents discouraged me entirely from that trajectory. So I wonder, what was the narrative about making your way in the world in your household? Because that just doesn't seem like a likely outcome, as you pointed out. I think in a way it was ignorance. I don't think they understood how hard it is to be a practicing musician. I don't think they'd ever done any kind of cost-benefit analysis to say that, hey, if you want to um, be the next Van Clyburn, the chances of that are about one and zero, and it's a very long and sometimes expensive road uh, to get to, at best, a plateau of, of perhaps mediocrity and perhaps boredom where you end up teaching uh uh, in the secondary school, just as a, a studio teacher, which I would have found uh, not particularly exciting or particularly interesting. So I don't think that they really knew how difficult to, it is to be a practicing professional mus musician or perhaps a practicing professional artist of any kind, whether it's a novelist, a, a painter, or particularly a poet. <laughs> you know, can, <laughs> tell your Indian parents that, wow, he's going to be a poet. But tuba, that's really not, that's really pushing it. I, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not the so, I mean, at least a piano, you can go like play jazz clubs and right, stuff. Absolutely. Tuba, 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 tuba yeah. what are you thinking, Srinivas? You know, it's funny. I was talking to a guest recently who I uh, was, who was a, a professional violinist for many years and, and uh -huh. she quit. She wrote this book called Declassified about classical music. Oh. And we were talking about this and I said, yeah, I was like, uh, we were talking about Dvorak's Eighth Symphony and I'm like, oh. I, I told her, I was like, there's a tuba part in Dvorak's Eighth Symphony and you know what the tuba part is? One whole note. I was like, did somebody sleep with this guy's wife who played the tuba so he just put that in there to piss, <laughs> to punish them? Um, but 
But the the thing that I I, I wonder is, uh, uh, you know, Eastman is no no joke. I know this because well, I, I was no joke to yeah. even get, and you had to have had some right. talent. So yeah. before okay, so we get into the, that's the question, it, yeah, you, yeah, you can get in if you work hard. If you have a modicum of talent, and there you we work. go. I had a huge work ethic. I mean, yeah. I was always in the practice room. I was highly disciplined, um, and I could make up. I could um, compensate. Uh, for lack of talent with hard work. And that's, that's the, that's the, the, the interesting question here. Nature versus nurture, talent versus gift, that sort of thing. The role yeah. of, of work versus natural endowment, uh, on and on we could go. Yeah. Well, so one, where does the, the work ethic come from? And, and based on your research, this is something I've asked a handful of people who I, I've talked to on the show who've been professional musicians. Why do you often have this thing that happens where there are these kids who are prodigies as kids when they're, you know, musicians, but right. very few young prodigies actually end up becoming professionals yeah. later in their life, particularly in music. I've seen this pattern when I've talked to probably a half a dozen people uh, on the show here. What What is that all about? Why does that happen? That happens for one very simple reason, it seems to me. And I do write about this in my book. I think it's chapter three or something like that. To, I think it's on the prodigy trap or something yeah. uh, such such as that. Um, it's an inter- it's an interesting point because prodigies are essentially mimics. What they are told to do, and you can say uh, watch these TV so such as Child Genius or Genius Junior. Um, uh, neither one are running at the moment, but they were very popular a few years ago. And what what happens there is that the young person with some uh, great natural endowment is asked to replicate and, uh, and perform any particular well-established discipline um, if up to a standard that we already know the outcome of. Um, you to, could be um, a, a prodigy with regard to chess, could be a prodigy with regard to music, it could be a mnemonic prodigy. Somebody has an extraordinary capacity room to remember things, or wind speeds in particular hurricanes, that sort of thing. Um, all that is well and good. And it's astonishing because they are 20, 30 years ahead of everybody else in their age group. But gradually, as they move up 20 or 30 years, um, that particular level of understanding no longer seems truly exceptional. And what they have not been encouraged to do is think in any kind of original way. They are extremely gifted in staying with inside the box. But the people that are the true geniuses in this world are the ones that are thinking outside the box. So prodigies are simply uh, young people with with exceptional initial endowment that come up to the standard of the age at a very early age. But as age catches up with them, they're no longer of of interest because they are not creators. Hmm. Well, we we you know you alluded to this whole debate of talent versus uh yeah skill, uh, you know, sort of nature versus nurture. And this is a, a question that I've been asking a lot of people. I've had numerous conversations. I talked to Stephen Kotler, who's sort of a, you know, go-to guy on peak performance. We had Justine Musk here, who is Elon's uh, ex-wife. Mm-hmm. She wrote this uh, you know, article about the psychology of visionaries. And this is something I wonder, particularly for you, you said, you know, you get to Eastman, you quit because you realize you didn't have any talent. Um, how how much of this is, is like, what role do genetics play in these extraordinary accomplishments. Because I think that we're lying to ourselves if we're saying that they don't play any role at all. 
Um, and, and Stephen Kotler said, look, if you have perfect match quality, meaning that you can align your intrinsic motivators and the things you're good at with, you know, the thing that you're doing, then you can be world class in something. But yeah, he made a good point. He's like, you know, I'm 160 pounds and I'm never going to play in the NFL. And, you know, I, I'm a scrawny <laughs> Indian and I'm never going to be in the NBA. Like those are those are genetic limitations that are very real. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. 
So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question. And it's it's um, we would love to quantify uh, the ingredients here. We would say what we need is is uh, 80 percent genetics and maybe a 20 percent quotient of, uh, element of hard work here. Um, but I think it depends on the individual. Luck certainly plays a role as well. Um, I think personally that a lot of it is, is in fact, as you were suggesting, Trinivas, a genetic. You have to have to get in the, the high level uh, of expertise or performance expertise or uh, transforming the world. You have to have certain genetic predispositions. My mind would not have been in mathematics, for example, but there are people that have this, this uh, sort of gift for the math or quantitative thinking. So um, natural nature is important. Your genetic, uh, the hand that you're dealt genetically is very important. But at the same time, there's a component of hard work involved. Now, the, my favorite story with this is, and again, I'm sorry to continue referencing my book. It sounds like some quite a used car salesman here. But <laughs> um, uh, what interests me is a, and I'm going to go to a, a story. The story, uh, I'm, I'm teaching online um, in the summers, because I would always do that. I'd love to teach this course, and given any opportunity, yeah, I would teach it. And in the summers, I could teach it online, and it would give me a bit of flexibility, give the students a bit of flexibility, too. So there we are online. It's a zooming in um, uh, real time, uh, three days a week for an hour and 15 minutes. Everybody comes together. It looks like a Hollywood Squares um, setup, and there are the faces, and we're talking. But there's this one face Nathan Chin, who always seemed to be dialing him into a different spot. One day he would be at the airport in Los Angeles, next day he'd be in Montreal, next day he'd be in Toronto, so the next day he'd be in the back of an Uber going somewhere. Eventually, I started looking around and find, trying to find out about this. It turned out this guy is the world's greatest figure skater. Well, he wasn't exactly at that time. He was a number one ranked American figure skater. Um, but he had not won a gold medal as he went on to do spectacularly well at the Tokyo Olympics. So here I've got in my class, Nathan Chen. I mean, this, this is it. This is the pinnacle. He's, he was the first to do all of this and that and things that I don't understand about figure skating. So at the end of the course, after all the grades had been submitted and stuff like that, I thought I was free to kind of just chat, talk with him uh, person to person. So I said, well, what, what, Nathan, what do you think about this genetics business? And, versus hard work. And he said, you know, as I look at this and I look at the top world-ranked figure skaters, I think it's 67, maybe maybe even 80% genetics, natural gift. Um, that was his opinion. And then in order to reach the 100%, which you would need to be Olympic-level skater, the rest you have really have to work hard and you really have to push your push yourself hard. So he wrote me this in a long email. And I've incorporated a bit, bit of it in the book. Um what I didn't get a chance to, to put in the book fully, I think is in a footnote somewhere, is that then he, a couple of days later, he sent me back a footnote and say, I talked this over with my mother, Chinese background. She said, no, 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 it's not this at all. It's all hard work. It's that, you know, it, you can be, you know, well, you, and whatever you want to be in life, it's a result not of your genetic gift, but of hard work. Um, and that's all, that's, that then brings you to the whole issue of culture and perception yeah. about accomplishment. And we can, that's a whole nother, that's a fascinating. Oh, no, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole. Because whether it's Indian, whether it's Chinese, or, absolutely. Or, whether, or whether it's American farm boy, which is sort of where I came from. 
Well, so yeah, this is such a a, a really interesting nuance uh, because I, my old roommate, we were talking about grades in high school. He's like, "Did you get straight A's?" I was like, "Man, of course I got straight A's. I'm Indian." <laughs> yeah, I was like, "But that doesn't mean I'm smart. It means that I had Indian parents." Because right. you know, we jokingly say it's like they'll disown you if you don't get straight A's. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue into talking one l- l- first talking about how you end up quitting Eastman and end up, you know. Uh, What's the trajectory from quitting Eastman to teaching at Yale? Um, well, I did have, there was one bit of good luck there. And I did have the fact that my father, PhD in economics and CPA, did teach at a university. So I saw what was going on in the university. And I thought, hey, these are really cool places. Uh, you don't earn a ton of money, but it's a reasonably decent living. And you can go in there and you can do, do interesting things. You get to work with young people. You get to communicate. You get to exchange ideas. And if you get this thing called tenure, then you can go out there. And as long as we say put butts in seats, in other words, you cover your enrollment and got, got kids coming in your classes, you can pretty much teach whatever you want to. They don't, they don't <laughs> care. So. It's, it's almost a number scheme it's, at some point. So that's the other great advantage of that. You, there's a huge amount of creative freedom in a university uh, situation, whether that's still there today. It's certainly there for the faculty members if they want to, if, if they're courageous and curious enough to take advantage of it. So, um, that, that's what the advantage that I had. I saw what a university was and I knew, okay, so I can't make it as a concert pianist, plan A is just shut down. Door A has just shut down. What's plan B? Plan B is to be a university professor. What what could you teach? Well, I could teach music. I could teach music history. I've always been kind of interested in history. I mean, history is this gigantic story. We all love we all love stories. So I'll go I'll go uh, traipse around finding stories. Initially, I started studying weird stuff like Gregorian chant and things like that. But then I found out about Mozart, and that sort of changed my life. And off I went in pursuit of Mr. Mozart all around the world because he had a fascinating story to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's talk specifically about education and, and particularly elite education. Uh, you know, at a place like Yale, we're talking about culture. And I think that culture absolutely plays a role in, in how people end up in these situations. Because I can tell you that the sort of narrative in an Indian household, which I'm sure it probably is very similar in a, an Asian household, is you go to the best damn university you can get into. Uh-huh. Um, but there's something that uh, William Dershowitz said in his recent book, uh, The End of Solitude. It was uh, he wrote a, an amazing book called Excellent Sheep, uh, which was about you know the miseducation <laughs> of the American elite. But these are the two things that struck me from this book, the the one that he wrote most recently. And he said the first disadvantage of an elite education is how very much of the human it alienates from you. The second disadvantage implicit in what I've been saying is that an elite education inculcates a false sense of self-worth. You learn to think of yourself in terms of those numbers. They come to signify not only your fate, but your identity, not only your identity, but your value. And as somebody who taught at Yale, um, because I, I believe William did too at, at some point, what do you make of this? And what do you see as patterns in your students, particularly in the wake of the recent college admission scandal? And the pressure that we're seeing, because I, the joke, I think, for many of us who went to these schools is that we couldn't even get into our own alma maters anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so as somebody who has been in the system, yeah. like, what is, 
like well, what's it's, it's, going it's, right, what's going wrong? The problem is we're not with the students, but or necessarily the educational system, but it's with the parents and this false sense of values and this false sense of, well, I want my child to be a world beater. So therefore, he's got to go to Harvard, Yale or Princeton, something or University of Chicago, something, something like that. Um, that's a, a huge misconception. And to my, in, in my defense, I used to say, because I'd be asked to, uh, friends would call up and say, you know, my son and daughter coming to campus. Can you give them a tour around campus? Sure. The, the back, um, uh, story here is probably, could you write a little note to the admissions office? Help them get that, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and I, I would do that. But then at the end of, of, of these tours, I would say to both parent and child that I was acquiring around there, you know, there are 300, at least 300 great universities in the United States. The United States really does have a lot. You know, our primary and secondary schools may be, I won't say a disaster, but challenged. And we, and yesterday on both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, there were articles, front page articles, I believe, about the decline. Maybe it's the third page in the journal and the first page in the Times, the decline of test scores in the the United States, the eighth grade reading and fourth grade math and how bad it was all getting. But the good news is because, and we could go into why that's the case, but probably because of private endowments and private philanthropies, there are a huge number of really fine educational institutions in the United States. And as I say, there are 300 of these around the country, at least 300 that you could go to and and come out almost as well as if you had gone to uh, to uh, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, or the so-called elite schools, or Ivy, or whatever, whatever it would be. That's a profound mistake. And then I would end by saying, it's not the school; it's what is in you. You know, how much, how curious are you? How much uh, independent thinking are you capable of? Are you uh, risk um, intolerant or risk tolerant? Um, are you self motivated? That this kind of thing. Th- those are. The, do you have a, a degree of of empathy with other people? Are you willing to take chances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Those are the things that really matter and uh, matter more so than the educational institution. If you put factors on, that's probably in my book, 80 to 85% of, of what's going to generate a particular outcome. And the other five to uh, Five, 10, 15 percent is probably the institution. So we don't want to overrate these institutions. They're wonderful. They're they're lovely. They're spectacular. They're good. But you, you, it's the person rather than the institution. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of of all these things that you mentioned, one of the the things that you say in your book is, I if IQ tests, SAT tests, and grades are unreliable predictors of career success, they're even worse predictors of genius. They generate both false positives. Those who seem to be headed for greatness aren't in false negatives. Those who appear to be going nowhere, but ultimately change the world. And I wrote this this uh, essay titled Advice to Freshmen Starting College. And mm-hmm. this was based on a conversation I had with one of my cousin's friend's sons who was starting college at, here at UC Riverside. And it just kind of went on to be this like 25 uh, word letter to myself to like my younger self. It's like this is the advice I would give you. And the, one of the things I said at the very beginning is you're not special. You're privileged. I'm like just because you're at an elite university. But the thing is that if these aren't you know if these are unreliable predictors of career success and worse predictors of genius, then why is it that they are the way that we continue to measure 
in this country. Because like you say, we continue to rely on standardized tests because there's just that standardized common Mm -hmm. set of questions that can be Mm -hmm. used to evaluate and compare the cognitive development of millions of students and advantage in countries such as the United States with large populations to gain efficiency, we sacrifice breadth of understanding. So with that in mind, as somebody who has been in one of these institutions, and this is somebody I ask every educator I talk to, something I ask every educator, if you were tasked with redesigning the entire system from the ground up, what would you change? Which I realize is a big question. Um, I start with... Yeah, well, where, where to begin? <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm not... And there are a lot of contradictory aspects here. And as you know, there's a case about to go to the Supreme Court uh, having to do with affirmative action we, um, and Asian students. Um, and uh, it's all worth uh, considering how, uh, whom do we admit? I mean, it's absurd what's going on in some ways. The people are immediately um, tossed out of consideration for these so-called, let's not just say the elite schools, the top 300 schools because of their zip code. If you uh, file an application um, for um, a school such as Harvey O. Princeton with the zip code 10028, you might as well forget it because that's the Upper East Side of New York. And they know that there are probably a lot of wealthy people there and so-called privileged. Now, those kids may be hugely smart. They may be hugely hardworking, um, but they've got a lot of strikes against so ironically, a lot of this is turning around in exactly the opposite direction where we're getting discrimination, perhaps against people that should be there. But this is not my area of specialization. What I think about more, or what I think I know something about, I don't know anything about the, the former. Um, the latter, however, is this. I think it's the curriculum. Um, in the course of my years at Yale, I started out thinking one way, watching what my, my own mentors did. And ended up in a radically different sort of a, um, a 180 pivot um, to something completely different that I should have known about all, all along. I always thought that um, the the what an instructor, a teacher, and of course should be structured around would be communicating information, as Virginia Woolf famously said, handing off to another a nugget of wisdom. So that so you would prepare your lecture notes and you would come in with your nuggets of wisdom or written out in words and ideas, and you would communicate those ideas. You would finish up, slam your lecture notes shut, um, walk out of the room and file them away till next year. Ultimately, in terms of cognitive perception and learning skills and things like that, to say nothing of, of getting good ideas across, Sarah, to me, that's, that, that's a lot of nonsense. That And uh, gradually, I morphed into a completely different style of, of teaching, it was much more so Socratic. Uh, obviously, I should have known that. He's uh, an old timer, having been around about twenty five hundred years uh, ago. So um, it should have been much more a question. Let's get a group of people together. Let's have a topic and let's ask questions about this. Nobody has any particular privilege here. Nobody has any particular standing or status. We're all in this together. Let's explore this. There are no right or wrong answers. It's all just an exploration. I was once impressed, and I'll continue along this just uh, for a minute. I heard of, though I wasn't participant in in any sort of way, a course that was taught in the psychology department at Yale, and maybe it was an experiment, where the instructor listed a course as such and such, and and it was to be the theory of this. And for the first six weeks of the course, he expounded that um, theory. 
And then in the next six weeks of the course, he expounded, told his students everything was absolutely wrong with that. Why the first six weeks were absolutely incorrect. So where I'm going with this is suggest that, that it's far more important to develop courses and, and modes of engagement that challenge and, 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 um, drive to the forefront critical thinking, looking at information, modes of analysis, modes of thinking, not trying to figure out necessarily um, what is right or wrong. And finally, I would say I'm a great proponent, as you might suspect, of us, of a broadly based liberal arts education, which is kind of ironic because, or maybe it's not ironic, because I went to the least broadly based uh, ed- education in the world, Eastman School of Music, where we did only music. There was one course uh, there in, in the sciences, just one course. It was called Science, and I didn't take it. So I spent the rest of my life trying to compensate for that. So courses in critical thinking, we need far more of those. And a broadly based liberal arts education, even if you're going to go into the tech world. If you want to work in the company, be a specialist. If you want to run the company, eventually get a good broadly based liberal arts degree. Mm-hmm. Well. Let's talk about this whole idea of how genius develops and, and what those habits are. And one of the first ones you talk about is obsession. You say geniuses have a habit. Now, hold on here, Shreen Vest. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That was interesting. Now, I gave this long disquisition, and then you immediately went on to a different topic. My sensation was when you did that, well, he wasn't satisfied with that, or he knew all that. <laughs> Or he, that didn't lead to any interesting follow-up. <laughs> so I'm going to turn things around here now, Shri Vest. I'm going to ask you, yeah. uh, in, in, in the spirit of good, critical, Socratic um, uh, teaching here, well, what did you think of that? Fair uh, enough. You, 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 you called me out. I, where, you, am I, where was I wrong here, Srinivas? You weren't wrong, actually. You called me out on me you know, I, I'm looking back and forth between my notes at your book and also trying to listen to you simultaneously. <laughs> so you caught me on this because I always have my notes from the book open. So, so did that make any sense? To, yes. Yes. Well, actually, let me, let me, let me, let me actually, yeah, you know, so let me what's your that. take on that? All right. So I, I think that there is an absolute validity to this because this is something that I have realized. And, and, you know, this is something I've mentioned on the show so many times that I don't want to belabor this point. But, um, at Berkeley, one of the things that I realized was that I would go and I would listen to lectures and you have a discussion section. But the truth is it was that same sort of rote memorization approach that worked in right. high school made me a C student at Berkeley. Um, because what I realized was that there was a big difference between actually understanding something and just hearing about it, because often what would happen is you would go through the motions of doing problem sets, um, reading the textbook, highlighting things, reviewing your notes, and then you get to, uh, an exam where they present a concept in a context you've never seen before. And I think to your point, that's because of the fact that it wasn't a discussion like you didn't sit in a circle ever and say, OK, how does this relate to the world that we live in? How does this apply? Um, mm-hmm. I just didn't have that experience. So uh, to me, it's like here we are at, at Berkeley where Laura Tyson, Clinton's economic advisor, was teaching the introductory economics class. And yet. I didn't feel like I walked away knowing anything about economics until you know when I did this show, I've talked to economists, I read The Wealth of Nations. And I thought to myself, this is such a different way. And you know what it is? I get to have the discussion. 
when I read a book like yours, I get to talk to somebody like you about the ideas in the book to your mm-hmm. point exactly. And so as a result, my learning is a very different style of learning than I ever got as a undergrad. I felt like it was just information imposed torture. And for somebody with ADHD, <laughs> it's like I, I could not, it, you know, I, I actually don't listen to podcasts because I realized audio is not my preferred form of uh, consumption because I read books because books allow me to do what you're talking about in my head. And then I get to come and have the discussion with you about the books. Uh, Whereas I don't enjoy listening to people just lecture at. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, and you mentioned the word story or something, and that's that's so important, and I think in teaching, and we don't, if, if we could somehow, 
uh, couch the morals or the takeaway or the facts inside of a narrative story or a life story, it would, it would make a good deal more sense. And I tried to do that somewhat in in, in uh, the book. And, and indeed, reviewers say that, that what they liked about the book was not so much the specific information about all the stories. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. You know, as, as we were talking here, though, let's pursue this. Uh, but see, this is the virtue of pushback. So then now, well, something popped up in my mind as I listened to you talk about all all the uh, sort of pre-canned facts that might come across or the principles of whether macro or microeconomics that we're coming across. It. Is it possible? And I don't know this. Uh, but let's think about this. Maybe it all sits there sort of hermetically sealed for 20 or 30 years. We've got this information in there. And then when the right life story comes along or the right situation comes along, then we release the genie to make sense and allow us to inform our thinking more, maybe to write books or do podcasts or whatever it might be. Maybe maybe all that factual information sort of way there is not necessarily a bad thing because at some point it may be of value to us when mm-hmm. given the right context or the right story writ large. It's funny you say that because the reason I read The Wealth of Nations was Naval uh, Ravikant, a venture capitalist. Well, I that's a pretty thick book, folks. It's not a pleasant read. No, no, no. no. Well, I, I, yeah, God, don't get me going. Uh, yeah, the, okay. the reason I read it was Naval Ravikant, who uh, is the founder of AngelList and a prominent venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, was talking about developing expertise and knowledge. And he said, you know, if you want to understand business, he said, reading The Wealth of Nations will teach you more than reading a 100 business books because he said, you want to go and look for the original text in a given field. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, okay, that is a pretty valid case. And you're right, it's a pain in the ass to read. Yeah. Um, and I'll, the reason I mentioned that is because you brought up the context and I'll tell you what it was. I started to be able to look at my business through the lens of the things I saw in that book and suddenly I was like, oh, this division of labor thing. No wonder this is a you know, foundational principle of economics. I was like, the mm-hmm. only difference now is we're dividing labor, uh, not just between people, but between people and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and so I started to literally look at it. I was like, okay, let me assume that, you know, all the apps and tools I use are employees in my, you know, uh, in my assembly line of what I'm trying to produce because, you know, I'm really fortunate in the fact that I, divergent thinking is pretty much <laughs> at the cornerstone of what I get to do all day mm-hmm. uh, because I have such a wide variety of inputs. And I so started just combining principles from that book, talking to my friend Cal Newport, and like, oh my God, this book makes so much more sense. I understand the concepts now of this book. And I, I almost wonder, like, there's this, you know, the ego in me is kind of tempted. Like, I wonder if I could go to Berkeley right now, sit down for a final exam without ever having gone to class and actually answer any of the questions on, on an economics exam. Yeah. Well, probably maybe, maybe not so many, but then the question is, are, are those questions asked on the economic um, exam, all that valuable for uh, life's lessons? I'm, I'm not, I don't know. That'd be the, yeah. that'd be the interesting, interesting, yeah. uh, interesting issue. Yeah. Um, well, you are going to, okay. So that was, that yeah. was a good, good example of how pushback and the, the kind of dialectic that one wants in a classroom rather than, rather than a monologue from the point of view of an instructor, the sage on the stage up there scouting off, uh, kind of pushback dialogue because, because I really do think it was a good example of it. We, we yeah, had, a, that was a fantastic it was, example. It was, it was so, it was such a good example. example. And we exemplified it. Um, yeah. But you were going to ask about 
um, what the enablers are, is that where we were going? Yeah. To? Yeah. We were, yeah. We, so, you know, we get into sort of what you call the hidden habits of geniuses. Mm-hmm. And one of the very first ones is that you talk about is obsession. And you say geniuses have a habit of working hard because they're obsessed. Moreover, mm-hmm. in public proclamations, they tend to value their parental units of heredity gifts far less than their own labors, as the following quotes from a few Western geniuses suggest. If you, Knew how much work went into it. You wouldn't call it genius. Michelangelo, uh, I didn't believe in weekends. I didn't believe in vacations. Bill Gates. And this goes on and on and on. Uh, but the thing that I wonder is where the obsession comes from, or more importantly, how do you find the thing that you're willing to be obsessed enough with that it leads to genius? Oh, uh, gosh, that's a tough one. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that I, I really broached that. Or it's a great question, and I'm not sure it, I did. I really got into that properly in the um, in the book. I suppose a lot of it would have to do with with luck. In other words, if you're born, if you're operating in the late 19th century, and you happen to be interested in technology, electricity, and industry, it would it would be you'd be fortunate to be born in that particular time, and maybe in the United States. Um, because that's where a lot of this seemed to be coalescing. Um, so, uh, uh, so some of it surely is genetic. Some of interest passed along by, by, uh, by parents. Some of it would have to be, uh, good luck. Some of it might happen to be just being as a capacity to be different. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, let's, let's think about that. Somebody with ADHD, um, that might come across as as a as a poor student in some ways, but on the other hand, that would be, and be and parents would probably try to clamp down on it. At least, as some kinds of educational methods would try to clamp down. But on the other hand, that can be a huge enabler because it can. It, that's the kind of thing that is a tantamount to, to curiosity. It seems. Mm-hmm. To me. So, um, so, so there are sometimes there are the things that seem like a disadvantage may be an advantage. So it's a very difficult question. And it's another one of these things. There's no any one particular prescription or recipe for genius or exceptional human accomplishment here. It's a, a, a medley, an amalgam of different sorts of things that come, that can come together in different sorts of ways in different proportions at different times. Um, uh, yeah. Culture plays a role. Uh, uh, time plays a role. The individual plays a role. Genetics plays a role. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about curiosity specifically because I think that the, the thing that to me is so fascinating about the way that we're both socialized and educated is that curiosity is drilled out of us as we get older <laughs> and older. And I, I don't know if you, you yes. went through this. I, I feel like this is one of the, the phases that, you know, all young boys go through, you know, when they follow their curiosity. Like the thing I was most curious about when I was in seventh grade was fire and like, obsessively right. to the point where I was banned from coming over to any of my friends' houses for mm-hmm. sleepovers because I just kept burning stuff when I'd go to their houses. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the thing that you say is although invisible and immeasurable, curiosity is an essential part of each person's personality and it is inextricably linked inextricably intertwined with other personal personal traits, particularly with passion for geniuses mm-hmm. more than the rest of us, the desire to understand is tantamount to an itch. And the the thing that I, I think when I wrote that piece about the advice I would give to freshmen, 
I said, follow your curiosity regardless of where it leads you. Or or regardless of the grades you get. Yeah, because the thing that I I realized, and and Tina Seelig from Stanford uh, told me this. In fact, uh, let me pull up this clip from her, which I thought really uh, sums this up beautifully. Take a listen. There are those students who come in and have their life planned for the next 50 years. <laughs> I can absolutely point to specific students who come to my office with a roadmap and you look at them and you say, where's the room in this for serendipity? Where is the room here for, for the possibility of stumbling upon something that's really exciting to you that's not on this path? And that's really shakes them because their life so far has been such that they, they really want a roadmap. Mm-hmm. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is those people who are just, they're afraid that they don't have anything they're passionate about. And they're searching deep inside of themselves for their passions. And they don't realize that their passions actually follow their engagement, not the other way around. Mm. And this is super important. Your experiences lead to your passions, not that your passion leads to your experiences. Yeah, that was very good. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that that honestly is, that's just not part of the narrative of, of how we make choices in an educational system. You're kind of handed a course catalog. Nobody says mm-hmm. anything about follow your curiosities. Like, here are the options in front of right. you. These are the career paths they lead to. It's the craziest thing. I And I think I say this in the book. I've never run across at any institution of higher uh, learning or any kind of learning that had a course on curiosity. Which is mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, it's the most basic thing that we should be developing. There's no course. There's there's nothing. Like, and now, maybe it's implicit in some of these, well, let's uh, develop independent studies as your senior project or some, something like that. Okay, that's heading heading in the right direction. So it's a very yeah. interesting interesting thing. And with four children, I was seven grandchildren, I kind of watched this, and there's a Huge divergence, I think, in terms of innate curiosity, which leads me to think that it may well be genetic. A a lot of it is genetic. I think, you know, um, and and we could all tell, tell stories. You, you're, you're the, the pyromaniac. I was the guy that would run around town and and was run over by a car in Iowa City because I was going around town two and a half, uh, at age two and a half, opening, trying to open car doors and work. Uh-huh. I got it. How I got out of the kitchen, my mother let me escape. She's probably in there cooking because that's what women were supposed to do. Not forget the master business administration. Um, so uh, curious people manifest curiosity at early age. And you're absolutely right. When I, when I give a lecture on this kind of thing, talk about curiosity, I have a, a PowerPoint slide up there and we have, we've got boxes, you know, and when you're a child, everything is open to you. And I watched this with grandchild the other day. It was fascinating. There we are, table. And there, there's, there's an, of uh, this long, uh, 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 two, actually two, two long objects out there. They're kind of long and narrow. And one is a pencil and the other is a knife. So how does a child know which is dangerous and which is perhaps creative? Um, they don't really know. And it's, it's thought to be the job of the, of the parents to say, to draw these constrictive aggressively constrictive boxes that limit an individual's curiosity as time goes on. And we have to fight fight against that. And I think there are some ways that one one can do that kind, kind of thing, but it's going too deeply into the woods to weeds to get there. Yeah. That particular moment. So it is kind of, it is kind of kind of genetic. It comes at an early age. The job of a good parent would seem to me not to stamp it out, but to encourage it. God, same thing for the university. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so speaking of curiosity, there's something that you said that caught my attention in the book. You said, with modern technology at hand, the opportunity to self-educate anywhere at any time is more robust, robust and more diverse than ever compared to the geniuses of yore. We have it easy. And I remember even Robert Greene had talked about his book, Mastery with me. He said, you know, if these guys had the internet, the people who had become masters, like people like Michael Faraday, they would have had a field day. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, um, I just finished reading this book called The Death of Expertise uh, by a guy named Tom Nichols. And one mm-hmm. of the things he talks about is that the internet, while simultaneously being a repository for knowledge, is also a breeding ground for misinformation. So I, I wonder, you mentioned kids, grandkids. Um, so I assume you've had probably a couple of generations of students too. Yeah, what have sure. you seen in the way your students have changed, at, particularly in terms of curiosity uh, as a result of, of technology? Gosh, you know, that's, I wish I could give you a good answer to this, Srinivas, but I'm not that, you know, I, I don't see, I'm not done. And I'm now retired, so I'm getting farther and farther away from I don't have my finger on the pulse of how young people really engage technology. And we all know the jokes about old old people with technology. <laughs> yeah. Any four-year-old can work my iPhone better than I can. And it's really, really sort of true. So I'm not, I wish I could, I wish I could say that I see this um, uh, intersection of uh, a, a strong uh, course change based on the outcome of students and their intersection with te- technology. I'm just not a, an expert there. Um, so I don't know. Um, but generally speaking, I think it, it does, it, one could, could posit that it has a deleterious effect in, from the point of view that there's too much time, um, inside looking and engaging and kind of frontal lobe thinking, problem solving, gathering information and not enough time on getting outdoors. Getting more green uh, screen than as than um, uh, uh, you know screen time in, inside. Getting outside, getting nature, because and getting a sense of relaxation um, and engaging with a different sort of world, because that will relax you and that will open all sorts of other modes of creativity that you may not have been aware of. So, mm-hmm. may, is it possible? I don't know that creativity suffers because of an over. Uh, um, zealous internet or an oversupply of a particular type of information constantly coming at us 24-7 and indeed almost an addiction to this kind of information. I don't know. It may be backing off, relaxing, getting outdoors, exercising, swimming, listening to particular kinds of music, walking through a garden. Maybe these things, they might seem like a waste of time, but they may make us a lot more creative. Mm -hmm. So one other thing that you say that really struck me, and this had a lot to do, I think, with mindset, is you say that geniuses cannot accept the world as described to them. Each sees the world asunder and cannot rest until things are put right. Thus, ask yourself, do you see something to which the rest of the world is obvious? Does this blind spot annoy you? Do you believe that you're the only person on the planet who could possibly fix the problem? And do you feel that you could not possibly rest until you do so? I think on some level, Everybody has a bit of that inside of them, but I feel like it's much more pronounced in some people, probably the people that you call geniuses and others, because I remember when I asked Justine about Elon, and this is the phrase that 
always stayed with me so much that I thought, yeah, that's brilliant. She said he has a way of taking the world that's in his head and imposing it on the world around him until it looks like the one that's in his head. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that we also face tremendous sort of social pressures um, because of the fact that we're all part of a tribe. I think there's this evolutionary need for us to not basically be, you know, thrown out of the tribe. So even if we do see the world differently, we're often afraid to express it. Uh, or, you know, we do it in, we play much smaller than we should, I guess, is one way to think about it. So how do you get to the point where you overcome that fear? Uh, because I'll tell you, I, when I served my, surveyed my audience, when I asked them, like, what is your biggest fear about building something creative? Almost all of them there's so many people who cited fear of public opinion as one of the biggest obstacles that was in their way. Yeah, well, um, I guess here, here are a couple of thoughts there. Passion could probably override fear if you're if you're really, really passionate about it, if you're really convinced. And, and maybe that's, that's the case with people like Jobs and people like uh, Elon, Elon Musk. So um, passion is important. Um, and maybe they, maybe people probably have different degrees, but maybe their genetic dispositions for greater tolerance for risks. Some people are just not, um, afraid to take risks and don't care what other people think. Let's, let's go back to those uh, with maybe particular, um, mental persuasion. We won't call them disabilities. We call, won't call them disorders at all, but maybe, uh, Asperger's and, um, autism. Uh, so many of those people uh, have, and I think even even uh, Elon Musk, who came on Saturday Night Live at one point and was talking about, you know, I, he, he acknowledged there that that he had to a degree Asperger's syndrome, and so many of those people seem to be um, on the, the cusp of that. So that's a particular, maybe it's a particular mental persuasion that they have. That allows them again, ironically, taking this uh, central disability and turning it into an ability and an enabler. Maybe it's that kind of thing that allows them to rise above public opinion, to rise and overcome this fear of what their peers think. Yeah. Do you think that that's something that can be learned? Not that. Yeah. I mean, you can do things with curiosity and you can do things with educational systems, um, mental persuasions. Again, I'm sort of out of my depth here. I have to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. I have to be, no kidding, be a practicing psychiatrist to be able to, and have had some experience to watch to see if you could change mindsets uh, in a particular kind of way. And then, is it, actually, I say this in the book because I get into this with people like Beethoven and then go, do we really want to change this? Yeah. Uh, do, uh, do, do we really want to give up Trinivas's ADHD? I mean, maybe that's the kind of thing that makes him curious. Oh, there's no question. It's funny you say that because I, I was having a conversation with one of my, my readers and he had been diagnosed with uh, ADHD later in his life, like after 50. And we were both joking about the fact that, you know, it's like, can you imagine if somebody had figured this out sooner, like what we might have accomplished? Uh, <laughs> because it's, it's honestly like it is a blessing in one context and a curse in others. Uh, you know, right. the very thing that got me fired from every single job I ever had was also <laughs> what led to the kind of obsession and ability to focus that let me finish a manuscript, a 45,000 word manuscript in six months. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this isn't a lack of motivation. It was ba- basically just a, a poor fit uh, in terms of mm-hmm. the jobs that I was in. Yeah, because those people that are ADHD, when they, la- my experience is when they latch on to something, when they finally find it, it, attention deficit. No, 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 no. It's the opposite of tension fixation at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Don't, obsession. Isn't obsession. Yeah. Okay. Obsession. There, there they go. So they're, they're, they're bouncing around until they hit something that matches that morphs exactly on with their particular obsession. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this idea of rejection. Cause you say if you're a creative type or an entrepreneur bent on change, develop a thick skin, understand that rejection is part of the process and be prepared to be misunderstood for a long time. And mm-hmm. I think it's that last part of the willingness to be misunderstood that people struggle with for so long. I, I remember very distinctly one of my cousins told another cousin at a wedding that we were at that whatever I was doing was a complete waste of my education. Uh, <laughs> and then I remember the day that I, that I jokingly always tell my mom, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, this person is officially off the guest list for the wedding that we haven't planned yet. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm putting the cart before the horse since I need to find somebody to marry. But, and my mom was like, who is this person that you are so like pissed off at that you're mm-hmm. uninviting them to a wedding? I was like, you don't need to know. And the funny thing is that that same person commented on my, uh, on Facebook the day that I, I got my uh, book deal and we, the, uh, my first book came out. Like, there's a picture of it and she congratulated me. And I'm thinking to myself, you're the one who said that I was wasting my education. You know, there's a, I mean, it has a whole business about um, acceptance uh, mm-hmm. and, and who's going to, uh, and uh, your capacity to withstand criticism for a long, long period of time. I, I could, I won't, you can answer this question or not, but how many, yeah. with, your, with your two books that you've published, I believe it's with Penguin, it could be, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Two books you published with Penguin, uh, the first one. Once you get one in, then you have your chances better. How many rejection letters did you get before before they before somebody accepted it? So this is not a good example. I'm like I have oh. the Cinderella. So I have the Cinderella story of an editor at Penguin reaching out to me. But that being said, uh, I wrote three self published books and something like fifteen hundred articles before I got the editor. And I did have. Uh, a very, very smart woman named Betsy Rappaport tell me when I first called her that I wasn't ready. And that was a gift that I only recognized in retrospect because that was two years before I got the book deal. And those two years basically gave me the time to develop the habits and the discipline that I needed to be able to write a book. Mm-hmm. And also basically refine my thinking, my voice, and my message to get to the point where I had something Interesting enough to say that it was worthy of an uh, of an actual publisher giving me a book deal. So I didn't get the rejection letters, but I, I mean, trust me, I, I lingered in obscurity for a very long time, which is equally equally, which is a form of rejection in its own way. Well, we can all go through the famous story: Stephen King rejected, rejected, rejected. J.K. Rowling submits the Harry Potter thing to fifteen different publishers, rejected, rejected, rejected. That's a, that's a that's about about the norm. Uh, ideas by Tesla, by Beethoven, by Van Gogh. I mean, sold one painting and that was to a relative. Vermeer, he had to wait 150 years before anybody started even rounding up or paying any attention to him. So, see, some people, uh, they, they have to wait a long time before they are recognized. And some people are never even recognized in their own, own lifetime. Uh, mm-hmm. a very interesting. One question, one thing I want to go back to, I've got to, 
I'm thinking in my head, and we haven't really talked about it's an interesting question, though. We've, we've framed this entire discussion, and maybe we'll we'll stop with this, but we'll frame this entire discussion about about the meaning of life. What, do, what does it mean to be? Um, what are we talking about? We seem to be holding up the standard, the highest standard of genius, somebody that changes the world. Well, what the heck? And, and what about the people that are, don't change the world but are just hugely successful? Is there anything, and that's what our, all of our parents seem to, to want the, the, uh, the, the offspring to bring. They don't want them to change the world. They don't want to go through the, them to go through the ge- rejections. They want them to be financially successful. So, so there is genius. There is the success. Uh, uh, what about leading a life in which every day you just went around doing a single act of kindness for anonymous people? Nobody would ever notice you, but maybe that's a wildly successful life. So. Huh? That's another way of of looking, another prism through which to look at all of this, or another way to to frame all of all of the issues. Um, it just you know once again, and maybe that's and maybe this has been. I hope it's been a good discussion, and maybe it's a course you don't want to come out. Well, oh, now I found it. I understand. No, that's not the way it happens. You leave oftentimes with as many questions as you arrive. Well, I want to finish with one final thing um, that you mentioned in the book. And I, this is, I, I wish people would really embrace this. Uh, you say that every human needs an activity with a salutary forward trajectory, even if what you're creating is insignificant to others, thinking yeah. that is important can be yeah. a lifesaver. I wish that you had written this book prior to my writing audience of one, because I would have literally put that quote in the inscription. At the very beginning, and I'm such a believer in that. That's the only thing. E- having agency in this world is the only thing that will allow for the leading of a happy life. You have to believe that you have a task, a mission that you are doing, and um, and, th- and then eventually you you work and you work and you're happy doing that and you finish that task. But then you're the first next thing you got to do is find another task that you can do. And that's what the, whether it's Musk or Jug, you know, another thing to invent or another planet to to survey or whatever it might happen, happen to be, uh, having a, believing that you have agency, that you, you that you have, uh, uh, that you have the capacity to shape something during the time that you are on this earth turns out, I think to be hugely important, maybe one of the most important of all things. Mm. Well, I think that makes a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Group. Unmistakable creative. What do you oh. think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, based on our discussion, said, say it again, Trinibus. I want to make sure yeah. that I understand it. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, creativity. They are different. They've created something that is different and that because I haven't seen that before, because I want to be curious. I want to find out how that happens. So mm-hmm. something that expresses creativity. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and share your insights, your wisdom, and your stories. This, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Well, good. Your work? Funny, yeah, hey, listen, uh, which reminds me, obviously we got this book called The Hidden Habits of Genius, 
fish around. You can find it on Amazon or any one of these other bookstores. But I have finished up something else that you might be interested in, and it's a promo. I don't make any money out of it, but yeah, please. it's a Coursera course. You've probably heard of Coursera. They have 3,000 basically free courses out there 24-7. Coursera, if, these, if this topic interests you, all you have to do is Google. It just came out a couple of weeks ago, available a couple of weeks ago. Coursera, Nature of Genius. And you get about 14 hours of free me talking with lots of slides and lots of animations and, and stuff and questions and um, engagement. So again, Coursera, Nature of Genius. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.